We're in the third night of our study of the book of James. The first night we primarily talked about James himself. Uh, which James is this, or at least do we think it is? James, the brother of Jesus, and uh, how much of a supporter was he of Jesus during Jesus' ministry? Zero? <laughs> yeah. He doesn't, doesn't seem to be a supporter at all. Uh, but that seems to have changed right after Jesus' ministry. Uh, because as we come to Acts chapter 1, where the 120 are waiting there in the upper room, the brothers and sisters of Jesus are part of that group. And um, <clears throat> in his recounting of people that Jesus appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that uh, Jesus appeared to James. And we might suspect that that really has something to do with the turnaround that appears here. And then James becomes a major leader in the early church, particularly the church in Jerusalem. From what we know about James, it seems that he spent his basically about 30 years ministering to the church in Jerusalem, that he became one of the major leaders there. He has a major part to play when they get together with the uh, elders and the apostles in Acts chapter 15 to make a decision about whether to require Gentiles to be circumcised or not. He takes a major role when, when Paul comes to Jerusalem at, at about uh, 58 A.D., and uh, he's giving advice to Paul about what he needs to do to relate to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And this book is uh, one of the most beloved books, uh, at least to many of us, uh, in Scripture. And uh, within Churches of Christ in general, this book's been accepted very well. There are people uh, who have not liked the book of James very much. Uh, as we talked about the first night, uh, Luther called it famously a what? A right, a right strawy epistle. Yes, yes. I grew up hearing that quite a number of times. Luther was uh, was quoted frequently in his disapproval of the book of James because he didn't think it had much of the gospel in it. The book of James does not talk a lot about Jesus. It does not talk about uh, Jesus' death or His resurrection. It focuses on very practical matters. And I think it's this wisdom for life theme that uh, causes it to be such a favorite with many of us that we really like the, uh, the wisdom for everyday living that we find in the book of James. Mike. And yeah, if you study James, Absolutely. Yeah, I, the, um, the book of James has many kind of echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's usually not in Jesus' exact words, but a lot of overlap with not only the Sermon on the Mount, but some other parts of the teachings of Jesus. In fact, one night I might uh, put a slide together or just bring a hand out to class to show the many reflections of the teaching of Jesus 
in the book of James. There are many places that, uh, that you can see that echo. Just one that uh, comes to my mind right offhand is over in chapter 5, a very odd little verse in chapter 5, verse 12. And what's odd about it is it doesn't seem to go before with what's before it or what's after it. It's just kind of like James said, oh, I got this, I'm going to stick it in. And he sticks it in chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is, is a simple yes or no and otherwise you'll be condemned. Well, that sounds very close to words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There are other places that are not as close as that, but many that seem to reflect James' knowledge of the teaching of Jesus and, and often very practical instruction that Jesus has given that James picks up and makes a part of his book. As we've talked about the, uh, the way the book of James is put together, uh, we watched a little video the first night. And if we, if we have time, we'll watch that video at the end. Uh, Larry Houck suggested to me that the teacher last week taught too long and we didn't have any opportunity to watch the video. So it, it might be that we'll have an opportunity to, uh, to watch the video tonight. We'll see you know, how much talking y'all do, how much talking I do, and whether we have time for that. But uh, when we looked at that little video that sort of overviews the structure of the book of James, uh, and this is a very common suggestion uh, in a lot of the writing and thinking about James, is that the first chapter is to a certain extent kind of like an index to topics that then are going to be dealt with in longer sections. There'll be one or two or three verses about a topic in the first section, and then you'll turn later in the book and there'll be anywhere from five or six verses up to 12 or even 13 or 14 verses about a particular topic. And so we are using that, started using it last week. And last week we looked at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and what it says about enduring trials and about that producing perseverance or steadfastness in our lives. And then we jumped from there over to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, which uh, kind of focus on that particular aspect. And we spent part of our week last week talking about uh, trials and how they produce steadfastness and how ultimately that leads us to, to be mature Christians. And then we talked about verses 5 through 8, uh, which <clears throat> talks about praying to God without doubting and asking God for wisdom and not being double-minded in our prayers so that we're asking for it, but at the same time, we're not believing at all that God cares for us, that He is willing, uh, wanting to do what is best for us. Uh, not to have that kind of double-mindedness. And then we jump from there over to chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, which is another kind of, we might call these little essays that are in the latter chapters of the book. And we're going to do the same thing tonight and basically the rest of this series. We're going to start in chapter 1, introduce a theme or a topic, and then find where that's dealt with 
in more detail in later chapters. And so tonight, moving on from uh, chapters 2 through 8, we're going to move to, uh, to, I mean from verses 2 through 8, we're going to move in the first chapter to verses 9 through 11. And so if you look at those with me, uh, I, you know, usually I have mentioned that I'm reading from the, from the new uh, NIV translation, but I'm not very thrilled with the way that they treat verses 9 and 10. I think they uh, end up uh, confusing us a little bit on it because it says believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, period, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. And overall, it's a good translation and gives a contrast between uh, those believers who take, who are in humble circumstances, maybe impoverished, difficult circumstances, uh, being thankful for, boasting in their exaltation. On the other hand, the rich. Uh, boasting not in their exaltation, but boasting when they go through something that, uh, that constitutes a kind of humiliation. What I think is a little confusing here is by putting the period and calling the first group believers in humble circumstances and then saying, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, it sort of makes it sound like uh, that, that James is saying that this is the believers are the humble poor people and then the rich that he's talking about are not in the church at all. They're outside the church. And he's calling upon them to, uh, to boast in their humiliation. I don't think that's what verses 9 and 10 say. And uh, what we have here is very literally... But the humble brother, let him boast in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Now what is left out of that second phrase are two items that seem to be implied. It says, but the rich in their humiliation... But the rich should what in their humiliation? When we go back to the previous verse to figure out what they should do, they should boast in their humiliation. And I think that's right. But where I think the, the new NIV may lead us astray just a little bit is I think it's also implied that the rich are brothers. That is, uh, those of you that are English teachers, what do we call it when we say something like, well, the humble brother ought to boast in his this, but the rich in their this. And you leave out two items. What do you call that in English? Maybe you learned this in high school. Well, maybe not. <laughs> or maybe you didn't learn it in high school. We do the same thing in English. You can leave things out of the second clause that you think are implied that they belong there. It's called an ellipsis, an ellipsis. And so we, we have this in English and we have this in Greek. We have this in a variety of languages that uh, you can leave something out after you've already stated it and it's implied to follow. And so I, I think this is saying that the humble 
the lowly brother ought to boast when he's exalted or in his exaltation, and the rich brother ought to boast in his humiliation. Now, I don't think that's perfectly clear what that means, but I do think it's clear what it says, and that both of them are, he's addressing people in the church. He's addressing poor and rich in the church. And we, we frequently emphasize that in early Christianity that uh, most of the Christians were probably poor, and that's likely to be so. But it's also true that there were wealthy Christians. Occasionally we have a particular wealthy Christian mentioned, but sometimes we just have a generalization like uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul is criticizing the church when they get together to take the Lord's Supper. And those who are wealthy and have are allowing those who don't have to do without. Probably in these early house churches, it was people that owned some of the biggest houses that the church would meet in. And uh, the way the houses were done, by the way, uh, was there would be a courtyard in the center. They didn't have electric lights. And uh, they didn't have ways to heat and cool and uh, to, uh, to bring light in their homes like we do. And so they, they built the walls around the center courtyard, and you could get light coming from outside, and you could get light coming from inside. And as long as it wasn't raining, you could go gather in the middle during the day, and that's where probably the churches gathered, is that the church would gather in this atrium, I think sometimes it's called, that's in the middle of the house. And they probably would gather in some of the wealthier members' homes, so, um, is he saying, I think there's two alternatives we could take here, and you can think about them and tell me which one you think he's saying. Is he saying that the poor ought to rejoice when they come into a bunch of money and things go well and they're exalted, or the humble, uh, those who are beat down, ought to rejoice when everything goes great and they get lifted up to a high place, and the rich ought to rejoice when they make terrible investments or the market goes down and everything crushes and they end up being humiliated. Or is he talking in spiritual terms? Is he saying that the poor or the humble ought to rejoice when they realize the wealth and the riches that they have in Christ. But the rich ought not to exalt or rejoice about their wealth, but rather the humiliation that they have in Christ. Is it spiritual or is it physical? And I should have read 10 and 11. So, so let's go ahead and get it all together. The rich take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Is, is he talking about them or is he talking about their riches? Or both? 
I, I think that's a fair question. I, I think it isn't perfectly clear. Is he talking about them or is he talking about their riches? I think that's a good, a good question to raise. And I, I raised both of these questions. Say, is it spiritual or is it physical? And this question you're raising, actually, I'm not raising. Is he talking about them or is he talking about their wealth? Um, because I don't think the text is perfectly clear which one is being talked about. Mark. In, in, in verse 10, in, in my verse, it said, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So it seems like he's talking about him. The person himself. The person, not, not necessarily yeah. the well. And, and, wouldn't it, and that might lean towards thinking of it as being more a spiritual matter, right? Yeah. He should realize that, uh, that he's just like a mist there for a little while and then disappears. And that realization is his humiliation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that they're both. And uh, is, he, is he talking about primarily their physical position or is he talking about their spiritual position? Spiritual position. Mike? That's about my lady that the physical is about because if he's reflecting Jesus' teaching, Jesus said, they are not yourselves treasuring on earth, but they are treasuring. Put lay up treasures in heaven. How do you do that, Mike? How do you lay up treasures in heaven instead of on earth? You share your wealth. You give it away, right? Yeah. Yeah, you share. You share your wealth. Other comments about these. I want us to go from these verses to some related verses over in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But if you have anything else to say about these in particular before we leave them, again, this, this seems to introduce, and, and it's, on the one hand, it's, it doesn't say the poor brother. It says the brother in humble circumstances, the humble brother, the, the lowly brother. And it contrasts with the rich brother. But the rich brother is to glorify in being put into some kind of lowly or humble circumstances. So it, it doesn't seem to exactly be talking about whether you're rich or whether you're poor, but rather whether, whether you understand your real circumstances or not. How would you deal with Matthew saying, blessed are the poor in spirit? Do you see that as really being different or not? There seems to be sort of a correspondence in Scripture between being poor and realizing your need and being wealthy and not realizing your need. And so, in effect, you can sort of use the poor and the humble together and the wealthy and the proud together because that's often the way uh, that, that people happen to be. I remember many years ago when uh, Nancy and I lived in Atlanta and we were still door knocking at the time. I, I haven't been door knocking 
on a, a church door knocking in a long, long time. I'm not anxious to do it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we were door knocking, and where our building was, you know, in one area behind us, they weren't wealthy, but they were wealthier than another area over on the other side of the street where there were some apartments and some poorer people. Guess where we had the best results for our door knocking? It's the poor. Yeah. And I remember one lady who later got converted. I rarely had anybody converted from going up, just knocking on the door, and they open, and you say, you want to study the Bible? And she said later, she said, I thought to myself, what are these two guys doing here? But something told her to say yes. And we ended up studying the Bible with her, and she ended up becoming a Christian and very faithful uh, for, as far as I know, the rest of, of her life. I've, I've thought for a long time that the Beatitudes are set up very broadly in an order in which there's a reason that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are first. And a reason they come before being merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers is because those behaviors flow out of the realization of our need. And uh, so I think there is a, a rationale for why they're put in that particular order. Well, let's turn to chapter 4 and look at verses 13 and following in chapter 4, because this picks up on the theme of uh, wealth again. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. I grew up in a home, and I know Nancy did too, where our mothers especially kind of instilled into us the phrase, if the Lord wills, right? You were supposed to say that before almost anything you said, I'm going to do. I'm going to do this if the Lord wills. I'm going to do this. And it always had to have that phrase attached to it. Even when she was years into dementia. She could still say, if it's the Lord's will. As Jesus says, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for a rich man to be saved. But we're all willing to take that difficult road, right? We don't want to get off the difficult road.
But our, our tendency is to get the feeling that we can handle everything, and it, it affects our prayer life, our lack of feeling that we have need and dependence reduces our prayer life. Surely you've noticed in your own uh, life that uh, when you really need something, when you're under a dark cloud, your prayer life goes up in terms of the amount of time and energy you invest in it. And then it goes back down as you start feeling like, well, I, I got things under control. Let me ask you about verse 17. Um, do you think verse 17 is the end of this paragraph, or is it almost like its own little saying, or is it some of both? Because I stopped reading it 16 while I go on purpose. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. That's a really common I mean, those of us who have been Christians for a long time have heard this. Uh, we, we call certain sins sins of commission, and the others are what? Sins of omission. And so this is about that category of sins of omission. And a lot of times we probably treat it like it was a free-floating uh, proverb, a free-floating general observation. And it's surely true that if we know what we ought to do that's good and we don't do it, that uh, <clears throat> it is a sin. Um, and the comments we make about sins of omission is, is there a way or would you see this uh, as the end of this paragraph? And I'll say again, I don't think there's a clear answer. Uh, does anyone have a translation that isolates verse 17 as though it were his own paragraph? So he, he makes it flow. And I, I think most translations put it in this previous paragraph. But um, I remind you, I think you've heard this before, that there's no paragraphing in uh, the ancient text. There's no punctuation. There's no paragraphing. There's not even any distinctions between words. And you think, well, how can you possibly read that? Well, you're listening to me right now, and I'm not stopping and saying, period. <laughs> Question mark. New paragraph. Uh, so it is doable. We can do it orally. We just don't think we can do it on the page. But they can do it on the page. And, uh, and be able to, to manage it that way. So there's no clear, it's not like we could find an ancient manuscript that would show us by the paragraphing that this sentence belongs with the previous ones as opposed to it sort of sits out by itself like I was suggesting for chapter 7 and verse 12, which seems to, I mean chapter 5 and verse 12. We don't even have seven chapters in James. But chapter 5 and verse 12 seems to sort of sit out by itself. And, and there is the little word, therefore, or so. Um, the NIV says, if anyone, comma, then knows the good. So, so that little therefore, or so, or then, does seem to kind of tie it 
back to the previous section, but that wouldn't mean that it couldn't be applicable to other matters besides our uh, arrogance about the future and our control on life when actually we don't know what's going to happen and everything, whether or not we, I, I don't think we generally teach our kids these days to say, if the Lord wills, not nearly as much as my mama and Nancy's mama did. We, we heard that a whole lot more, and it was more routine for us, which doesn't necessarily mean you absorb it or learn it. It is not saying it is not the point. It's thinking it. It's realizing our dependence and realizing that, uh, that we don't know what's going to happen. Yes, and Larry is, of course, kind of old school, right? <laughs> <laughs> so are you and I, but uh, Larry's definitely kind of old school, and old school was to say that praise a lot, which is a good thing. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it. It's not saying it that necessarily reveals whether you really believe it, whether you really live that way, as though you're in constant realization that you're not in control of things. No matter how it may appear that you are, you're not. No matter how much insurance you have, and no matter whether you have a car that's passed all the vehicle tests, and it can go ramming into a wall at uh, 70 miles an hour, and the people inside could be fine. None of that is going to protect you and ensure that you're going to be in control of tomorrow. Okay, chapter 5, we'll look briefly at the first part because it continues the theme of wealth. In fact, this is very strong in the notion of wealth. Now listen, you rich people, and, and we might question here whether he's talking about brothers in the church or not. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corrupted. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is pretty strong language about wealth. But he, he seems surely to suggest back in chapter 1 that there are wealthy people in the church. And he doesn't seem to say that you can't have any wealth. And clearly examples of Abraham and others indicate that, that uh, there are. But there could very well be wealthy people in the church who are not using their wealth rightly at all and who deserve this condemnation. 
with, a, and we do read about some famines in the New Testament. And we read about a, a famine in the area of Palestine that they're collecting from, from other parts of uh, the, the Roman world. And <clears throat> he's saying that there would be situations in which the poor had to sell their property uh, to, uh, to those who were wealthier. And I think you can envision that business speaking, I, I don't know exactly how James will address non-Christians, um, but you can envision that it's talking about non-Christians who behave this way. But I think it's also possible that you can envision it as Christians who thought that taking advantage of the impoverishment of these other people uh, was just good business. And he is uh, speaking in the harshest kind of terms to them. So, is the, the video must be going on behind me. <laughs> I keep seeing, see, you're not looking at me, you're looking up there. Watching, the, we will get the, uh, the volume on that controlled. You know, I have an idea, and that is that possibly the, uh, the part that runs the speakers is not turned on. Jerry, you were down there looking. Is everything turned on? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it appears to be. <laughs> well, hopefully... This will work, and we'll come back to it maybe next week and uh, see this, this part. Thank you all for your attendance tonight. Next, next week, by the way, we're going to keep moving through James 1 and keep jumping into later parts of the book of James. Have a good week.